0: In this conversation, Adam Roberts and I explore philosophical inquiry as a mode of perceptual training. We talk about the relationship between conceptuality and perception, the contemplative practice that Descartes used to produce his philosophy, how to sort through the spiritual marketplace, and the meta-freedom that exploring our assumptions Can open up for us. If you enjoy this conversation, I recommend you check out The Side View, Adam's new project based on the ideas he shares in this episode. It just got started, and it's already home to a number of great articles and provocative podcast episodes. And as always, if you appreciate Emerge, and are getting value from the conversations you're listening to, I invite you to become a supporter. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can go to anchor.fm slash emerge and click on the very attractive purple button that reads support this podcast. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. This time on the show, I'm welcoming as first-time guest uh, Adam Robert, who I know of as uh, Knowledge Ecology on Twitter. We we kind of laughed that I, I wasn't sure what to call him when I first, mm-hmm. you know, actually connected with him off of the Twitter sphere. But we first got in connection with each other, I think, through our mutual friend Jason Snyder and. I was just super drawn to the way that you talk about philosophy, like what philosophy is and is for, the nature of concepts and how they interact with our perception and our life, and just... The whole thing you are brewing, it felt like a really sophisticated sort of, uh, you know, uh, moving on from a lot of the ways that our culture has come to understand and enact like philosophy and abstraction. And and so I'm just really excited to get a chance to dive into some of these topics with you. Um, So welcome to the show, Adam. I'm curious if you would give a little bit of background for yourself, whatever I missed, whatever you think is useful to share from the beginning.
1: Sure, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Um, As you mentioned, I'm a a philosopher. I'm a PhD student at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Um, What you saw there on on Twitter when I was engaging with Jason and others were uh, bits and pieces of research and writing that I'm doing on my dissertation, which has to do with uh, a French historian and a French philosopher whose name is uh, Pierre Hadot, and I'm very drawn to his view of philosophy just because he's, he's recovering a tradition of philosophy that's actually very old, so it's kind of funny to me to hear that you're saying that I'm approaching this in a new way, um, yeah. because in some ways I think maybe it is a new way given the context of academic philosophy today, but... Uh, Hadot's reading is actually very old. It comes out of um, the Greek tradition. Um, So Plato and Aristotle and Stoicism, Cynicism, um, that kind of thing. And the main kind of idea for Hadot is that uh, philosophy is intended to be a way of life. Uh, It's intended to be uh, a very practice oriented and a very practical set of disciplines. Um, and he he really emphasizes in his definition that the most, if there's one thing that sort of characterizes philosophy is that it's an exercise that's aimed at transforming perception. Mm. Um, so it's actually this kind of activity that you engage uh, or a practice that you engage on yourself. It's a work on yourself of transforming yourself and how you see the world. So that's kind of what I was trying to put out there. Um, And I guess that's where we sort of um, converged a little bit.
0: Yeah, totally. And and what I think I picked up on, and we talked about this in our last conversation, is the kind of really elegant symmetries between what I saw you pointing to and what I've been hearing from Rob Berbea, who I've had on the show a number of times. And and if you've listened to those episodes, you'll hear him use this uh, phrase or this kind of way of thinking about meditation where it all comes down to ways of seeing right so we can adopt a way of seeing that then allows us to see the world in a, or sense the world in a particular way that does cool stuff right so we might right. adopt a way of seeing like seeing that everything is impermanent or impermanent and then you know through the uh using of that way of seeing over time perhaps you know if we if we do it then maybe our suffering will be reduced or right. you know something like that right and so even embedded in this tr- you know, very old tradition of, of, of Buddhism is a kind of implicit pointing to what I think it is that you're talking about where it's like y- philosophy becomes this way of taking on perceptions or perceptual trainings in order to s- what understand the world better What's what's the what's the kind of purpose of it or just to yeah. do it
1: that's a, i mean that's a really good question and so Hado is clear that this the, the practices of philosophy and these practices of transforming perception if they're if they're really done um honestly and in the context of many of these traditions and that they're really organized around Uh, not just the cultivation of knowledge, but certain kinds of virtues and certain Mm. kinds of ethics and certain kinds of politics. So um, it's a, it's a practice of transforming perception. Yes, but it's not transforming perception just in any direction. So there is that, there is that ethical strain to it. Um, But of course these are, these are all kind of looped structures or looped practices. So Mm -hmm. if, uh, if one of philosophy's concerns is, what is the good or what is being ethical, then that's related to um, something like being able to see the ethical or see the virtuous in people's behaviors and seeing what's not virtuous or what's not ethical. So Mm -hmm. even at this just kind of like ethical level, it's it's still a practice of seeing, it's a practice of perception in some way.
0: Yeah. And so this is, I think what really resonated with me about your approach, uh, is that I think it's so common and, you know, both of us are kind of walk in spiritual circles. CIS is a, you know, I don't think it's quite on the level of Naropa in terms of its, uh, spiritualness or kind of participation in the spiritual culture, but it's, it's similar kind of vibe. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and in those subcultures, even at a learning institution like Naropa, there is this Mm -hmm. kind of like distrust of conceptuality and a kind of like uh, uh, pushing it away as something abstract and largely irrelevant um, to perhaps, you know, spiritual understanding and realization and, and actualization. And I felt when I was reading your stuff, a kind of Uh, kinship in a desire to rescue conceptuality and its relationship to perception training as something that can actually help us become more ethical, more, uh, you know, actualized people. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that kind of uh, uh, rescuing or that kind of healing of concept.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much to say about that topic. And um, I mean one one perspective that I really share with Hado is that he, he talks about this there's a he he uses this phrase reciprocal causality between the the sort of existential choice or the embodied practice of a certain philosophical school and the uh the theoretical justification for choosing that way of life. So those two things come together just in the choice of the path already um, and I think that's important to recognize that it's there's no there's no bright line or um, uh, dichotomy or hierarchy between uh, theoretical uh, conceptual pursuits and um, embodied or spiritual or practical ones they have to kind of come together um, in a kind of a fuller uh, I would say more integrated practice. Um, so that's on the one hand, but on, on the other hand, for me, I think is a, is a deeper question of just how perception and action Mm -hmm. function anyway, which to me, um, again, there's no, there's no, and we can unpack this a little bit more, but there's no big strong line between sort of the knowledge that you've gained as an individual and how you see things in your perception. And I think when you really kind of get how those two come together, um, you can see what Haidt is saying. He, you know, he borrows this phrase uh, "philosophy is transformation and perception" from uh, Henri Bergson, um, and I think it's th- that possibility is rooted in the fact that things like our knowledge and our conceptual understanding are, are they're, they really participate in structuring our perception at a very deep level, and you don't, if you kind of gloss over that, or if you just kind of uh, push the conceptual piece to one side, you, there's a good chance that you're not really going to get how deeply some of these conceptual architectures uh, are ordering your first-person experience and your perception. So, um, I wouldn't say that you you could do one or the other uh, in any kind of ordinary state.
0: Yeah, totally. And so, I guess. I almost want to ask you, like, well, this might not be a very fair question, so feel free to, we could kind of, like, elaborate yeah. it differently, but, like, sure. what what is a concept and what does it do? And how does, or I'll just, I'll stick with that. What is a concept and what does it do? I mean, in in from the perspectives that you've been researching.
1: Sure. Um, there's no one answer to that question in the philosophical tradition. You know, if we just stick even just to a very narrow slice of, um, Greek or Western philosophical history, there's that that question gets gets answered in a lot of ways. Um, I like Hado's kind of linking of the embodied practice with conceptual knowledge because it it syncs up very nicely with another strand of research and inquiry that I'm involved in that comes from um, people working in embodied cognition and phenomenology and um, and activism. Uh, so these are people like Evan Thompson, uh, Alvin Noe, um, and they, they have, they're, they're kind of clued into this integration of, say, the concept and the percept, or the conceptual and the perceptual. And so my favorite definition comes from Alvin Noe, um, and, and he basically says a concept is a, is a, is a skill. It's a, it's a skill of perception and it's, it's specifically a, a skill of understanding. And so understanding and perceiving on Noe's account show up in perception and in experience at the same time. So if you're looking at something and you understand it to be a certain way, if you've identified um, an object as a, a pen or a cup or a monitor uh, or something like that, then you, you've you've successfully used a concept in perception to identify what that thing is mm-hmm. and so if if you look at it from that perspective, then uh, ordinary states of consciousness, insofar as you're understanding what's happening, is saturated with concepts right. And so if you, you you know, that's kind of like a philosophical take and you can trace that back to Immanuel Kant and all kinds of other people, but even uh, like cognitive scientists, like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Lisa Barrett's work Mm. on emotions and predictive processing. She's very much kind of saying the same thing that a concept is kind of a, an inferential category and you're kind of statistically building up these Mm. Objects of perception based on your prior experience, your accumulated knowledge and your sort of best guess about what the thing in front of you is. Mm. So there's no. Um, so this, this kind of idea that if you're just attending to the sort of concreteness of the things around you, that's not necessarily outside of the conceptual yet. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm interested in how that how that kind of works. Um, and then the. Uh, I think if you view it as a skill, like Noe does, it starts to explain a little bit the differences in the kinds of perception that people are capable of. And so mm. that's that's where the practice dimension comes in. Perception is something like a practice. It's a skill that you can get better at, yes. Um, depending on what your goals are.
0: Right. And so this is another symmetry with Rob Berbeya's work where he's quite critical of the kind of strand of Dharma practice where or meditation practice where people will uh, urge you to be with things as they are, right? As if there is yeah. some way things are that's independent from the kind of conceptual architecture that we bring to bear wittingly or unwittingly in any moment. And so right. it's really this, I think, this this undermining of this sense that there is a place that we can go other than that which is informed by concepts. And I guess, you know, it might be that you hear, listener, uh, that is not yet here, but you know, I'm a, the, uh, uh, it, that that you might hear this and, and think like, well, what's the big deal? Like, why does it matter, you know? Uh, and, and I guess, you know, I have my own thoughts about that. Adam, I'm, I'm curious, like, why does it matter that it's not... Like the way things are is not a is not a place that we can go to that's independent from our conception. like wh- what is what is that occluding if we don't see that clearly?
1: Well, I, I'll draw it back to Hado for a second and kind of uh, give you a little bit of background to his his reading on philosophy, um, and particularly his reading of of Socrates, who's his, his kind of um, archetypal philosopher on the archetypal philosophical figure. Um, and the, the main practice that Hado is saying, um, or the main category of practices Hado is saying is central to philosophy, is this idea that he, he groups under a category he calls ascesis. Mm-hmm. And ascesis is um, this kind of uh, intentional practice, any kind of intentional practice where you seek to, to get to work on yourself, to transform yourself, whether that's through diet or meditation or exercise or philosophical inquiry uh however you achieve those changes in perception those are practices of ascesis and he says the the primary ascesis is um he calls it he kind of describes it in a bunch of different ways Uh, One of them is what he calls Mm self-duplication or a self-developing a relation to itself Mm -hmm. uh, or there's a kind of a dialectic of the self with itself. Um, And what what all of these things name is this kind of ability to just for a moment suspend your immersion in your first-person experience and to kind of see if you can't understand something about why the way the world is showing up for you the way that it does why do these objects appear this way and not that way why do you attach this kind of meaning to them and not that what are the values that are showing up in your perception of things as they're kind of coming into your awareness and so when you do that kind of thing, you realize that there are and you can actually experience for yourself that there are there are multiple ways of conceiving the same set of phenomena where there are, this, you know, if you line up 10 people and have them look at the same set of objects or events, even if the properties of those objects and events don't change the meanings and the level of understanding that becomes attached to them changes quite dramatically from person to person and from, you um, you know, different, different levels of skill are able to do different things in relation to what's happening. Um, and so one piece of that is this conceptual understanding. And if you can kind of get into that layer, then that's important because it'll, it'll give you a level of, of freedom to respond mm-hmm. to that, the, the constructed nature of that experience that you won't have, if that's just kind of If you're just kind of accepting in a sort of a naive realist way, the way things are showing up for you in in experience. And so when Hadeau talking about Socrates, he's using Socrates as an example and saying, Socrates is doing this uh, for his own self in his own life Mm -hmm. and evaluating this this idea of the examined life, know thyself, um, is rooted in this kind of tradition. Um, And so he's doing that for himself, but he's also doing it uh, in the dialectic. So Plato's dialogues are kind of examples of picking apart representations and evaluating them and looking at them from different ways and seeing if are these are these perceptions veridical? In other words, are they true? Uh, Are they not? And and why are we constructing it this way? And then the third one that the third example he gives is that Socrates is actually doing this with Athens, which with his community. And he's saying, are, are our laws and our customs, uh, are they the right ones? Are they the ethical ones? Mm-hmm. Are they actually aligned with the good? And it's because he's able to have this relationship to the construction of his own experience that he's able to kind of move around and ask these questions. And so when people say Socrates is a gadfly, he's basically running around kind of jolting people out of their sort of sleepy immersion into experience and getting them to kind of uh, evaluate these constructions. Mm -hmm. So it for me, it's like, um, there's a, there's an ethical sort of imperative there. And, but then there's also a sort of, um, uh, an increase in, uh, in freedom. So you're not, you're not just kind of running along with whatever the, uh, the the reigning ideology or the reigning set of sort of representations you have available says is the case. Right, you're, you're kind of able to investigate those things.
0: Right, yeah, and and the so there's a kind of element of, of critique I think that is being pointed to here that often feels absent from contemplative. Uh, practice or can f- in some in some cases can be absent from contemplative practice and Correct. I think that the way that uh, Rob Berbea says it and and this is I've just been kind of running around my mind I think it's similar to what you're saying is that if we don't take on that role of kind of critique trying to unearth like what what are we actually doing here there is a way in which we can inadvertently reify certain, ways of being that are perhaps just in our culture that if we don't sort of uh try to look underneath uh that we might end up acting in ways that fundamentally might go against our deep values or or, our pursuit of being truly ethical or something like that like we're not getting quite the full picture is what it feels like to me and and yeah there's almost a kind of like meta liberation or meta freedom that can happen once you start to question these 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 underlying frames that we use to evaluate like our lives and our contemplative practice or whatever.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, the emphasis on practice there is, is really important. Um, because it's not the case that sort of you engage in this activity one time or because Socrates or Plato engaged in these activities 2,500 years ago that we sort of found the answer or the way. You know, it's, it's right. It's to me and Hado is, Hado's very good on this. Hado says this is more like, this is more like athletics. This is more like physical training. It's exercise in a very literal sense. So it doesn't matter whether or not somebody else at some other point in time, you know, was able to do some of these things and relay them in a book. It matters that mm. you are doing this in your own life mm-hmm. and that you keep your practice active and healthy. So there's a, the, the, and again, this is, this is kind of, it, it comes back to perception again. It's a kind of athletics of perception, uh, a, a training in perception. Um, so that these kinds of things just become part of your habits, um, evaluating representations, for example.
0: Right. Right. And so in this way, it's kind of like, perception as a skill as an art form as a training as an athletic ability You say it's a beautiful metaphor and uh you know i guess one question that comes up for me and uh, or, or thing i'm curious about is like training on behalf of what like how do we you know say i want to uh train my perception like how do i imagine or towards what end am i doing that why am i doing that
1: well, it goes back to what we were saying earlier, the, 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 the Greek conceptions were, you know, aligned with these sort of archetypal prin- principles of virtue and the good. Um, but, the, you know, the flip side to that is that Socrates, again, being the kind of example here, is very clear in saying that the, the keeping your own ignorance in the forefront is essential and not identifying, uh, not sort of making an idol of one conception or one image of, of the good or the true or whatever the, the sort of guiding mm-hmm. star is, is important. Um, and that ignorance actually kind of serves an important role in this, in this sort of athletic training, because it means that it's something that you're always going to come to again and again and again. Mm. And so it's, it's more an ongoing process of inquiry and readjustment and transformation um, than it is sort of saying this, this is the good, this is the virtuous, we know what it is, we just have to align ourselves with it and head in that direction. Right on. So yeah. I think that I, you know, and I'm, I'm, who am I? I'm just me, I'm just sitting here, I, I don't know the answer to what those questions yeah. are, ultimately, but I'm trying, you know, and I think that's, that's an important attempt. Yeah. So on those bigger, on those bigger questions, I think, You have to keep in mind your ignorance and uh, have a sense of humility about it. But then, you know, when we get to other kinds of things, and one of the things that I really like about this view of philosophy is that it applies to not just philosophy, but any number of kind of skilled behaviors. So um, it's not just that philosophy could be defined as a transformation in perception, but almost any skill. Um, any kind of um, artistic endeavor or say like carpentry or being an architect or a designer or any any kind of skilled uh, discipline like that functions in kind of the same way where you're training up certain perceptual abilities. So in those contexts, the answer to what are we training for is kind of a little bit more specific and easier to answer. We're trying to become good architects or good carpenters. And then, yes. you know, that's, a, that's a little more straightforward. Yeah,
0: and I feel like the, 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 what you're pointing to is that there's some kind of like meta skill that's useful in every context of learning more generally. And it's, I mean, I, it reminds me of, of this thinker, uh, Jordan Greenhall, who I've had on the show a couple of times, uh, of uh-huh. this idea of, of, and I think it meshes pretty well, of of like sovereignty, like the capacity to act in any given direction, you know, depending on what's appropriate. And, And the skill of learning new skills is the skill to learn that increases your potential sovereignty the most. Because in a complex world like the one we live in, now, uh, you know yeah. you you don't know what skills you're going to need. It's probably the case that whatever skills you know now aren't going to be useful in uh, five years, ten years, twenty years, and so this there's this kind of like stepping back and learning the skill of learning new skills. And at the root of it, I think, and, and this is what maybe you're partly what you're pointing to is is that it, they're all matters, they're all transformations of perception.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what they all have in common. Um, I'm a little skeptical of the idea that there's, that we can get very good at lots of different things. I think, um, I'm kind of a bummer in the sense that I think these things take a very long time to get good at any one of these skills. Um, and that kind of being a generalist, I think is an important sort of skill of its own, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, what the limits to these exercises and these processes are, I'm not sure, you know, I just, if, even if I just look at my own life and trying to change, um, a few, a few habits that I don't, that I don't like, and just the effort that's involved in that, Mm. um, I, I don't know how much, I don't know how much flexibility ultimately there is. And I don't know. Um, I'm very interested in this question of freedom and sovereignty and, um, Thomas Metzinger, the uh, philosopher, talks about mental autonomy. Um, How how much of that can be achieved, um, and how much are we sort of wed to um, all of the sort of determinisms that we're born into in terms of um, our genetic history, our psychological history, our the the state of our social world, and all of these other kind of factors that sort of drive us, you know, drive whatever the self that we are is before we kind of show up and try and take the reins mm-hmm. of it. Um, it's, it's an open question for me and I'm, I have to be optimistic about it because, um, it, it keeps me engaged and more motivated to continue practicing, but I'm curious to know, um, what, does does jordan greenhall have a sense of how much of that sovereignty is kind of up for grabs or
0: yeah it's a, it's a really good question and and i think what come what's coming up for me as you were speaking is the difference in flexibility of kind of our mental terrain and the kind of uh, breadth of capacities we can leverage there and then the kind of yeah. breadth of capacities we can bring to bear in the way that we interface with the physical world, which I agree, it seems like, I mean, geez, it takes so long to learn to do anything in at, at any degree of skillfulness. And so right. when I imagine having a kind of generic kind of meta learning, maybe it improves your skillful, like you, the, the the quickness with with which you learn by 10, 15, 20%, but still it's going to take you a hell of a long time to learn right. anything that's really worth right. doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, whenever we're talking about and you know, whether we're talking about developing new skills or changing some kind of psychological aspect of our own, our own lives, then we're always kind of in the the polarity of the, the freedom to act and change and the, the constraint and Mm. the determinism. Mm. I don't, I don't know that there's like a fixed ratio, uh, between those two things. But, um, I think, um, acknowledging and becoming aware of the side of the constraints is probably the best way you can leverage whatever that freedom Mm. might become. Mm. How do
0: you, how how do you make sense of that question in your own life? Like, how do you think about constraints and, and, and relationship to freedom in this way?
1: Um, to, I mean, to my mind, I'm, I'm interested in these questions and, um, kind of engaging in these practices as often as possible, because I think the constraints can be pretty substantial. Mm. Um, and I think that's important to acknowledge. And, um, I'm certainly no clinical psychologist or a therapist, uh, of that nature, but, you know, I don't, I don't suffer from serious addiction or trauma or. Um, anything else like that and so I I feel like I'm a kind of a good candidate for seeing how these things work outside of a sort of a clinical pathology and I still find it very difficult so I can only imagine what it's like for a lot of people who are kind of struggling um, uphill with some of these experiences Mm. Um, so it's hard to say and I think if you read people like uh, Thomas Metzinger um, the the weight of determinism really really comes forward Mm. um and so i'm interested in um if that's the case then this sort of this sort of athletic approach to it seems to be the best one where Mm. whatever your circumstances train and however far you've gotten train more you know (laughs) yeah um and just just you know, that's, that's kind of my attitude
0: about it. Yeah. And so uh, in terms of, you know, philosophical training from this perspective, you know, I think I, I got a philosophy undergraduate degree and, and philosophical training in, 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 that circumstance was just reading, you know, and writing yeah. a little, and, and writing. And mostly yeah. the writing was like kind of duplicating other thinkers thoughts and, and linking them together. And that was, I guess, in terms of actual practice, that was what we did. And so I'm curious yeah. if you could share a little bit more about, like, what is this practice? What does this practice look like
1: um, in right. a life? Yeah. So, again, I wanted to kind of break down this this binary at the beginning between, I guess, the, the really shorthand is the binary between theory and practice. Um, but it's the same as this kind of binary between um the embodied and the conceptual or the theoretical and the practical or something like that. Um, And I think when you are reading, there is a way of reading philosophy that is a practice um, that is its own kind of transformative exercise. And there's a way of writing um, that is also its own transformative exercise. And I think a lot of artists and, um, you know, athletes and, and people who aren't doing philosophy, but are, exercising something feel the same way, that um, if I want to write better uh, or if I want to write differently, I have to be different. I have to change my life mm. somehow. Uh, the other the other thinker that I've been using recently is Peter Sloderdijk, who um, chose a, as the title of one of his books, uh, the, the, the line from Rilke's poem, You Must Change Your Life. Um, and that's just the title of the yeah. book, and I think that's true of you know whatever practice you're engaging in. But in terms of what the, the practices of philosophy are, um, when Hado says that the the first practice is this eschesis of the self, um, he's really saying that um, first philosophy. When you you'll probably be familiar with that phrase, first yeah. philosophy. That's the phrase that philosophers use to try and understand where does philosophy start. Does it start with Questions about epistemology, questions about truth and knowledge. Does it start with ontology? Questions about being and what is. Does it start with ethics? Um, does it start with aesthetics? Like what's, what's the way in? Um, and Hadeau's view is basically that none of these things are the way in. Practice is the yeah. way in. So practice is the first philosophy. And so if you think about what we were just saying about um, evaluating representations um, evaluating the way that you're constructing a narrative around how things show up in your world. Um, if you can't kind of understand that basic level of um, your participation with what you're engaging with and your contribution to that construct, you can't do something like epistemology. Mm. You can't separate, you can't you can't make any meaningful, Statements about what's opi- what should count as opinion and what should count as knowledge, which is, you know, one of these traditional distinctions. How do you separate um, just somebody's take on something from, you know, the truth of the situation? Um, and so if you kind of go into philosophy with this in mind, then all of the traditional branches, epistemology, ontology, aesthetics, whatever, these are all sort of meditative or contemplative practices, exercises, um, so, in a sense, the the answer to the question is that the the standard branches of philosophy, um, if you view them as practice disciplines, are just kind of fine as they are. <laughs> it's 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 just that they they don't get taken up that way and they don't get represented that way. So, and it's something that philosophers um, they have to answer this question a lot because you know if you're talking about uh, you know, um, Buddhist meditators, and they can take you through, you know, various breathing exercises and meditation exercises, mindfulness exercises. That's the practice. And that shows up for us mm-hmm. as, you know, this embodied thing. Um, but what I'm asking people to do is see reading and writing and studying as contemplative embodied practices and uh, as performative practices, as things that you have to do in your life in order to really understand what's at stake in some of those uh, discursive or linguistic spaces, you know, which is basically all you have available in a text. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, That's you know.
0: very well said, and, and I think you know, it's... I notice that when I have this way of seeing uh, like text, that I also see that texts are asking me to perform certain perceptions and, you know, yeah. they're in a sense persuading me or helping me to adopt a certain way of seeing in the way that they're written. I think I find that I trust texts more that are kind of, reveal that they know that they're doing that when they're doing yeah. it, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's rare to find right. texts that do that or people too, but it's actually oddly persuasive right. when they, when they, they say it.
1: Well, this is, I mean, this is a. I have a lot to say about this, but this is a fascinating thing because there's this. So just a a really good example of exactly what you're talking about is. um, So when Pierre Hadot wrote his text and he's writing, he's writing not just a, a history of ancient Greek or Hellenic philosophy with this kind of practice view centered. He's actually saying that once you get this, you can read the text, you know, the great texts of the modern period and of the 20th century. And you can see that once you're sort of initiated into this reality, that it's right there. Mm-hmm. It's there in most of the major texts. And so, um, you know, the 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 other French philosopher who's kind of in this conversation is, is Michel Foucault. And he's writing his own, this is kind of in his later, later period, um, starting from, you know, say, 1980, he starts writing these Uh, books about uh, Greek Hellenism, many of them inspired by his reading of Mm -hmm. Godot. And he's kind of saying that, you know, once we get to the modern period, um, he calls it the Cartesian moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously it's a reference to Descartes. And he's saying that at this point, we, this idea that philosophical or even scientific understanding requires a change or a transformation in the subject falls away. And from that point on, the subject can remain the same. And all that's required is that this subject acquire certain kinds of knowledge. Mm. So it's more, he's saying it's more like, whoever the subject is doesn't really matter. Practices of transformation don't matter. You don't have to do any of this. You're more like what we would think of today as a computer with a hard drive. You can just download it and stay the same. And so he's saying that this really starts to gain ascendancy after Descartes. And then Hadeau is responding to Foucault and saying, well, hold on, wait a minute. Is that really true? And Hadeau goes back and shows, I think, pretty persuasively that, well, look at Descartes is asking you in his texts to go through what he explicitly states as a series of stoic meditative exercises where you're peeling away um, the, the things you can't be certain of in your perception, bit by bit, moment by moment, in your own experience. And he's saying this is exactly what the ancient Greeks were doing. And once you kind of see that, and you can see it in a figure like Descartes, who's sort of the archetypal modern philosopher, um, and then you start reading you know, the other texts that come after him, the German idealist text, the you know, text in phenomenology, um, you know, Heidegger, all of these things, you can see that this the people who are writing really good philosophy are probably doing a lot of these types of exercises. There's just mm-hmm. something about the way it's taught and transmitted that loses that dimension. And I wouldn't say um, that there's some clean line between, well, there are you know sort of academic professors who don't get it. And then on the other hand, there are these sort of like, you know, real philosophers out in the world who are, you know, really practicing. I don't think there's any strong, there's probably philosophers inside the university who are really doing it and philosophers outside the university who are really doing it. But it's when you lose that practical dimension that a lot of this gets lost. But I think it's there in in the
0: text. Yeah, and it's 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 fascinating to go back and like read it back in. To like you did with yeah. Descartes there. I mean, that's it's true. If you read it, he's like clearly doing what could only be described as like a kind of contemplative practice of deconstruction. Yeah. Uh, and it's right. like exactly. very symmetrical. And he's even
1: yeah. saying, he's even saying, until you do this and experience it, don't move on to this. Right. Right, you know, right. it's like, it's a right, sequence. But,
0: but, but, it, it, but then, you know, I'm. Str- it's striking that in the context where I learned that originally, this text, I read it and not once was it mentioned right. that we should attempt to do what Descartes did to our own
1: mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, we talked a little bit about this uh, in our phone call. Um, I, you know, I've been living in the Bay Area for over 20 years. It's a, a you know. It's a, it's a mix of a lot of things. There's a lot of, you know, Buddhist and Zen practice happening. There's a lot of uh, different sort of Unitarian Christian practice happening. It's a very pluralistic, um, you know, we have a large Jewish, Jewish Buddhism community. You know, it's, mm. there's all kinds of stuff happening here. So um, I kind of grew up just, you know, just taking little bits and pieces from the stuff around me and, and reading it that way. And so when I started reading Hado, I kind of thought, oh, this is this, this reminds me a lot of the language that I find from these, these Buddhist communities Mm. that I know when they're describing meditation, it sounds more like that. And then I went looking for examples of people who were just making those connections, and I didn't find very many. And um, it could be my ignorance, but it's just in the past few years, really, that I've, I've seen people like Evan Thompson really starting to explicitly make these connections. And in fact, just um, a few days ago, um, there was in um, the uh, NDPR, the Notre, Notre Dame Philosophical Review, a review of um, a book called Buddhist Spiritual Practices, Thinking with Pierre Hadot mm-hmm. on Buddhism, Philosophy and the Path. Yeah. And that was just a very recently published anthology, um, so I think you're starting to see those things kind of explicitly talked about more. Um, but yeah, like you said, um, it, it'd be cool if you if you took that approach to teaching Descartes mm-hmm. to undergrads and saw what happened. You know,
0: I, yeah, I think that'd be that'd be super cool, and and with all the other philosophers yeah. too, right? And then see like what philosophy do you create when you're like taking on this way of seeing, essentially, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean for for me, once you have this kind of um insight or awareness that this is what's going on, um it it's it's confusing. I, I don't even know what to make of a lot of these texts if you don't read them mm. that way. You know, like I don't know what what that's like, like how what I guess the sense of value would be lost for me. And so in that sense, I understand why people are critical of the overly conceptual or discursive or abstract nature of philosophy. But I think if you kind of got them early and, you know, I think, you know, uh, you know, if you're if you're into sports and athletics, um, you know, people often talk about like precursors to movement, um, things your body needs to be able to do. You need to have a basic level of fitness and flexibility before you know, you can really engage in um, difficult sports or rock climbing or whatever it is. Um, but if you don't have those, it can be a very uncomfortable and unsatisfying experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of what I'm trying to do with the dough is get at these precursor movements. Like, what are the what are the precursors to philosophy? Yeah,
0: and I, I, something that comes up for me is, as you're saying this, too, is like, there's also a way that I think people have been harmed by concepts and by abstract thinking in various ways, Like that, that, that abstract thinking has been historically often used to separate people and to uh, yep. it, conduct violence of various kinds on the human body. Yep. And, and I think that there's a kind of wariness, um, a, an appropriate wariness and caution around conceptuality yep. that that has uh, created.
1: Right. I Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, you know, I was just mentioning a little bit about Foucault's later work, but if you look at Foucault's earlier work, that's kind of exactly what he's doing is looking at the intersection of um, language and discourse and concept and how it interfaces and gets codified in things like law and the penal system and uh, the psychiatric system and how basically this discursive or conceptual layer is weaponized uh, and then codified into law and then enforced with violence against certain people. Um, And so if you want to like dig into how to break those sort of systems of violence apart, then you need to have this kind of philosophical athleticism. You need to have, you need to be able to run up and down these kinds of discursive modes of thinking um, and you know, pick them apart and rebuild them. You know, I think there's a, you mentioned that there's a strong element of critique or criticism here, which I think is important, but then, um, there's also the element of creating new mm-hmm. concepts, creating new skills for understanding and reading the world and for acting mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and so if you think about again, like, um, these different kind of skilled, skilled perceptions, skilled disciplines, Um, people who are, are trained in, um, architecture, for example, understand how to build and manipulate physical space to get people to do things and to feel things and to behave in certain ways. And they have a knowledge that I don't have, you know, so they're, they're able to interact with material reality in a way because of their sort of perceptual ability, um, And so you can't, you can't, to my mind, have these questions about, you know, justice and ethics without including a substantial engagement with this discursive Mm. layer.
0: Mm. So I I want to, I have something to add. And I also want to name that uh, I'm having this weird experience in my own subjectivity that's similar to when I speak with somebody named Bonito Roy, I've had her on the show a couple of times, but where... The way that you're using concepts is kind of and 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 speaking to me is undermining, I think mm-hmm. some of the ways that I see the world. and like it's actually I can it almost feels slightly psychedelic like I've mentioned this to Bonita before um, and and she says this is a common experience for people that do her form of analysis, which I think there's also some symmetries uh, in terms of using language to kind of undermine and play with concepts which is like one you know it's kind of like an interface that you're fiddling the dials with and it it plugs right into your perception i mean it's case in point i think of what you're pointing to Uh, i guess i'm curious if you have anything to say about that i have a different uh,
1: uh, place to go to but well there there is I don't know how to say this without sounding silly, but um, there is some kind of intuitive connection that we have and understand between, uh, well, language and perception, of course, but um, just there is some kind of potency to words um, that you find in different kinds of spiritual, religious, and ritual traditions that do things to perception. Um, So I, you know, I can, I think, I don't know what, Terrible amount about Buddhist mantra, but there's some relationship there between words and transforming perception yeah. um, and I think in this case uh, we're when we're getting when we're getting something right, we start to feel the way that you're describing i I think it i I don't know how to name that, but I think it's because yeah. um we are getting at something that works,
0: right, right, right. Yeah, and, and so I, I, that's, I like seeing it that way because I often find that I feel that way in really good conversations that take me, or or readings even, but mostly conversations that kind of take me to the edge of my understanding. Yeah. Um uh, So, right.
1: well, so think one, here's one another way to think about it. Um, there's. One definition of philosophy that says philosophy is something like making the implicit explicit. Mm. And so, um, if we're talking about, there's this kind of conceptual or representational uh, component to lived experience to perception. Um, and that's generally implicit and it's better if it's implicit because you don't necessarily want to be messing around with all your concepts (laughs) and categories all of the time when you're, buying coffees and you know going out on dates and crossing the street and stuff like that but so when you bring that implicit layer into the explicit domain um, it it has this kind of recursive yeah. effect where it's been there the whole time and but you're just seeing it now you know um, and so I can't remember if this was a quote from Alfred Alfred North Whitehead I think it was Whitehead who said something like, um, "It's very, it's very difficult to see, um, to see the obvious or to see what's right in front of you." I can't remember off the top of my head what the quote is, but basically, it takes a great ability to bring into the foreground that implicit obviousness that's always there. It's too yes. close to to be seen a yes. lot. So when you do it, it it's kind of, you know. It's
0: startling. <laughs> it can be startling, yeah. And Bonita says, like, that this work is not for the faint of heart. And it sounds, there's a kind of similar thing going on where, where uh, as she puts it – she said to me that that – often she'll be performing this kind of work and it's not exactly the same, I think is what you're pointing to, but it's playing in the same kind of recursive territory where there's like this right. infinite hall of mirrors and you're like one of them yeah. drops away or something. And, and it's <laughs> very, it, it, it's it's weird space to be in. And that, and that often this can activate people's identities and they recoil, you know, because they don't want to get, they don't want to lose parts of their architecture in a sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, but so, I think it's it's really fun uh this kind of uh, way of using words. I think it, it also reminds me of I think it's the book Snow Crash where they have that is that the one where they have the the word that like is a is a, is itself a virus. I think that's the William Gibson. Oh, well in any case, uh just another allusion for people who get that. The uh the other the thing that also was coming up for me as we were speaking is uh uh you know, yes, there's this Whole renegotiation of what philosophy is that I think is just personally quite useful in terms of cultivating our own athletic ability, so to speak. Um, but yeah. then there's also the way in which it seems to help us make sense of the world, and I think yeah. particularly now, like I, I, I'm like you, I was I wasn't born in the Bay Area, but I grew up. Uh, you know, my 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 spiritual teacher was the internet, and and that was a very confusing spiritual teacher to have because there were so many different, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, disciplines and traditions and practices and all of that to sort through, right? And so this question of how do we sort through the spiritual marketplace or the marketplace of ideas more generally, I think this way of seeing that you're pointing to has been critical for me to help navigate that confusing terrain because I basically now see it like, oh, you know, They're asking me to see in a certain way, to practice a certain perception, to kind of, uh, understand the world through their lens or something like that. And and then I can say like, oh, do I already have access to that way of seeing? And they're not really telling me anything new. Great. Then I can ignore them, which is a, a lot of the cases. That's, you know, what I end up doing. Or are they like, you know, adding something really interesting and useful and shifting the way I see things. And then I can like vector towards that, but I don't pretend there's something else that I, like I'm always seeking that, you know, maybe the next one, maybe the next one sort of.
1: Right. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, I, I think I've benefited hugely from, you know, just Growing up in the Bay Area, being so close to Berkeley and San Francisco and just having access to all those used bookstores and places and ideas and conversations and um, that sort of whole post 1960s explosion that, you know, one of one of the centers was, you know, 15 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. And that that's definitely informed a lot of how I approach these things. Um, but it's also informed how I approach these things in a in a kind of a negative way, or maybe not negative in the sense that um, I feel negatively about them, but in the sense that um, with some of these approaches, especially this kind of idea of a kind of a disciplined or athletic practice, I'm kind of taking the negative position against that sort of um, it's more of a night like a laissez faire nineteen sixties. Attitude that I think probably was necessary to break particularly U.S. culture out of its sort of more sclerotic, conservative, rigid 1950s self and bring it into something else. But um, this emphasis on the on the on the ascesis and on the training and on the practice, um, I'm interested in using that to kind of pull out of the orbit that I grew up in and kind of go go somewhere forward and i think part of this whole um the pluralism of things that you're talking about uh you get a lot of breadth but not a lot of depth mm-hmm. you know in a lot of these things and i don't really know what to do about that and um i think it's good that we can choose among them and have these kinds of conversations um but i'm also also a little bit skeptical about um, how that played out from the 1960s onwards. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, I think one thing I'm optimistic about or is that if, uh, if, if we're kind of creating the the, future in which people can actually go deep by understanding what it is where all of these disciplines are actually pointing to AKA if we accept that it's all about altering our perception in certain ways and like, you know, uh, uh, there are people who will argue that if you alter your perception this way, this will happen. There are people that say that hey, actually that, that I did it too, it really worked. you know that there's some kind of like a, a right. common ground that all of these sure. disciplines can now sort of compete on, right? They can, and and that's yeah. what ends up being my experience now. Is that like there's all these disciplines they're trying to persuade me that they you know that their perception altering <laughs> technology is the best or whatever, yeah. and I'm like skeptical and you know, <laughs> let's right. see what happens. And and I t- I think it's a good way of evaluating the landscape for me,
1: right. And I I'm interested to see how that plays out. I think um you know it just makes me think of of Hideo again and his his descriptions of you know. Plato's Academy, Aristotle's Lyceum. Um, you know, the Epicureans had the gardens, Zeno had the Stoa. You know, Hado talks about all of these different um, sort of practice spaces or schools mm. um, that were kind of configured around each, um, each philosophy. And I think, you know, today we think of these things as living inside of a university, mm. And, and maybe that's not always the best place for them. And so what you were describing is kind of more something that probably, as far as I read it, is probably more like that Greek context where um, just like you can sort of get gym memberships to different gyms and you know, kind of go to each one as, as you see fit, you pay your membership fee or whatever and show up and train. Um, we're kind of more in that space with these different spiritual traditions and practices. But I, I don't know. Um, there's something about that institutional framework that, uh, or at least uh, having a strong lineage that I think maybe we need to recover yeah. more, Yeah. at least in the Bay Area.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have any thoughts about what that would look like in the context of the kind of philosophical uh, uh, basis that you've articulated so far?
1: um i no i don't really know how the best way to go about that is and i think one of the reasons that you know you, you know you and i both have gained so much from the internet and from learning so much over the years on the internet just interacting with other people or just having access to all of that um all of that knowledge and all of that media um is that there's such a low barrier to entry mm. Um, you know, we're having this conversation right now and, you know, it's going to circulate and it doesn't, in terms of like the material investment, the bar is pretty low, but when you're talking about, you know, establishing a, an institution of some kind, uh, that the, the economics of that change so drastically that I I don't even know how to think about it. So, I mean, we haven't really talked about, um, the side view at all, but one of the things that's even making, this sort of online initiative that I'm starting even possible is the fact that um, it's it's cheap enough for me as a grad student to put together and have at least the kind of an online community that can connect these different traditions in a, in a uh, dialogical way. Um, but it's not like we're going to get all of the benefits we would of meeting face-to-face regularly. Right. So, right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's kind of uh, well, t- tangential.
0: No, it it, it it makes sense. And I think that's sort of how I see it. I, I feel like, you know, we're on a trajectory and part of the beginnings of that trajectory might be that these networks are starting to cohere around certain ways of seeing that uh, make yeah. sense to people who grew up in a similar kind of culture and, and uh, circumstances, you know, um, and have a same kind of cultural code that they speak to each other and, and represent. And that over time as you know, to right. be honest, like younger people get more power as the arc of history goes on. Like, maybe there will right. be physical schools, maybe there will be virtual schools but that have more kind of uh, support in various ways. But that this, it seems like this is just, like you said, it's just kind of a, it's a relatively new way of seeing or of making sense of of the, the all the stuff that we're exposed to, I think.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's also a very old kind of idea that that's, you know, you need a community. Um, and so there's something about the the collective sense-making, not just the sense-making of an individual, but, uh, the sense-making that becomes possible when we, when we link our perceptual abilities together, um, alongside with our technological networks and devices, we can kind of capture uh, larger, more complex phenomena that would probably uh, go right by us as individuals, or we at least we wouldn't be able to verify uh, what we think is going on as readily. Um, you know, even if some of these communities seem to be growing, um, the likelihood of there being enough people just geographically right near me that are that have these kind of more niche or esoteric interests that I do is very low. But finding them online is pretty easy Mm -hmm. and like these non-local communities of collective sense-making, I think are going to play a huge role in however we navigate the future. Nice. Um, If we can... If we can keep the networks going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's something that to bring Jordan Greenhall back into this conversation, we had a conversation about what he calls self-organizing collective intelligences as being one of the major agents essentially in the near-term future as a kind of emerging power in the world stage. And he actually (laughs) uh, makes the claim or argument that QAnon is an early example of that kind of phenomenon, but that in the future, as we develop technologies that allow us to kind of act in concert in new ways, that we'll start to develop kind of collective sense-making, you know, networks of collective sense-making that their competitive advantage will be how they make sense out of the world in a way that, you know, makes them better able to be successful across whatever, you know, whatever it is. Whatever the endeavor is.
1: yeah. Yeah, I like that idea that we're we're kind of creating these um, sort of ecologies of consciousness or ecologies of sense making. Um, They're you know sort of cybernetic in nature, uh, part human, part computer network. Um, It's kind of unsettling as that is, but um, I think there are some benefits there. yeah, I don't know. Does Does Jordan Greenhall think the the QAnon thing is a like a collective of people or uh, what's? Yeah. I don't understand the connection. Have, you, have you
0: looked into QAnon much? I don't know if we want to go down too far deep into this rabbit hole, but have you?
1: Yeah, i I, I know. I know about it a little bit. It's not really something I spend a lot of time on, but um, I just kind of assumed it was like a like a kind of a troll. It,
0: well, it is. I mean, it's fascinating. Right. You know, he's he's not. I think he's making more of a disc, He's he's kind of looking at what it is functionally speaking, less about the truth or the content that it has. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what what essentially there's. uh, there's like mimetic alchemists who help reweave certain narratives together in order to create content that then helps a collective make sense out of itself. And it's really right. inarticulate. Like I think he says it's like the intelligence of like a six year old, right. Or whatever, but, uh, that perhaps this is pointing in a direction, uh, a kind of trajectory of these right. sorts of entities.
1: Well I, well, I mean, one way of looking at that would just be to say that the, whatever, whether or not, people like that online or have access to some kind of truth about conspiracies or whatever is one thing, but just to say that that's, that's an anxiety or that's a state of affairs that's in the collective psyche somehow. It's, it's, it's expressing a a feeling about things um, that might not be literally true, but there's a reason that those kinds of complexes emerge, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's Um, uh, in a lot of ways what the, whole perspective you've been offering today, or at least the way that I've understood it in some ways is as an invitation to take things seriously, but not literally, right? That like, there's a way yeah. in which it's less about the content of the book than about the way in which the content transforms your experience of it or something like that. That there's a, a second order taking seriously of the world that helps us make sense of its complexity.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. There's something, um, the, the book is kind of an, an ability to extend your own thinking via whatever sort of scaffolding the book provides. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not like there's, you know, a a fixed set of content, you know, quantifiable amount of knowledge in a book. It's really whatever the the book, whatever the book gives you access to. I'm thinking with this book and this book is allowing me to do things in perception and understanding that i wasn't able to do before this book became part of my sort of extended web of cognition yes yeah. Um, so yeah and part of that involves kind of understanding the concepts that are being expressed in the book and understanding how they relate to history and other things but uh, the main thing is yeah it's that it's acting on you
0: right it's it's multi it's multidimensional and, and 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 the i'm reading this book called the shallows about like how technology has affected the the brain and how we understand the world or whatever it's quite good and one of the things that it right. talks about is how we had to over the course of hundreds of years train ourselves to read and then read silently and then read in a way that we could like comprehend, uh, you know, nonlinear argumentation and all of this stuff. Like, it it, it was right. it's an affordance over time of an ongoing dialectic between us and our kind of technologies. In this case, the written word, and that, you know, there's, but but you would have missed that if all you were thinking was the content of what people are reading. It's more of like the, right. this. Yeah, I don't know how to quite what word you would use to describe that, but the second
1: piece. Well, well, you, I think you got it right when you said a book is a kind of a, an affordance. Um, in, in James Gibson's sense, it it lets you do things. It emphasizes certain things. And maybe it's not an affordance. Maybe it's an environment for multiple affordances. Mm. Um, I heard um, Thomas Metzinger speak. I can't remember if it was in an article or on a podcast he was on or something. But he was saying that a a concept is like an affordance. Mm. It's like a cognitive affordance. Um, So if you don't, if if listeners aren't familiar with that idea, an affordance is just basically um, the idea that what you're looking at in the environment, when you're looking at objects, you're not just looking at what, whatever their physical properties are, but you're looking at what they afford or make available. So a chair affords sitting, um, a library affords reading, uh, a shopping mall affords consumption. Um, and Metzinger is saying that uh, a concept affords a certain kind of understanding. Mm. So it's, it's similar to what I was saying about Alvin Noe before, that it's kind of like a skill of perception. But so the concepts that you have available to you and the, the concepts that come from you know, the web of books that you've kind of made a part of your life afford things in your perception that you otherwise wouldn't have access to. Um, nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's 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 really enjoyable to think of books as like entering into this arena of perception training. You know, for that sure. that kind of lights that actually like lights my heart on fire for reading. Speaking personally, and so I enjoy just entertaining that. And I'm, I guess, as we head towards the end of this conversation, yeah. I'm curious. Uh, you know, yes, we've we've troubled this dichotomy between theory and practice. I think a, a good deal in this conversation. But I'm also wanting, you know, to see if there's anything you would say about like how should we or how might one read books or encounter books or move into a space of reading as philosophical training in a way that's more likely to harvest as many affordances as possible from a text
1: it's a great question i don't know if i have the answer to it but i think um coming just coming at the text with that understanding might be enough at first, um, just reading it in that way, and understanding that the primary exercise of reading is a transformation in your own understanding um, that's how the text gets out into the world by changing how you see and act um, by itself it can't do any of those things so i'm not I'm not sure what what um I'm not sure. I think that's, that's, that's the easy answer.
0: Totally. And so I would just say like, you know, given what we've talked about throughout this conversation, you know, the, the um, the practice is of taking on the way of seeing that sees what you're doing as a practice and to kind of like relate to it in the way that you would, you would think one who saw it that way would relate to it Yeah. in a sense.
1: Absolutely. And I <laughs> yeah. think, you know the other thing that would help is to stay stay flexible and stay agile and um, stay provisional and experimental and stay open-minded and you know let the transformation happen and don't get don't get too attached to your current you know set of understandings um, hold them lightly um, and, you know don't 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 be ideological and think that you have hit upon the final truth or something like that, that, Mm. that would probably help.
0: Although you'll be forgiven if you do, because that's part of it. (laughs) It seems like that's part of the process.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And so uh, when that happens and you're right, it will happen. Just remind yourself to let go and try again.